0: We can't just say, this is where the stars are now and hope that 50 years from now, 20 years from now, whatever the operational lifetime of the system is, that those stars are going to be there. Uh, We need to know exactly where they're going to be.
1: On this episode of the Defense Scoop podcast, the U.S. Naval Observatory celebrates the 150th birthday of one of its most important telescopes and a glimpse into the U.S. Navy's eye to the sky. It's Wednesday, November 15th, 2023. Welcome to the Defense Scoop Podcast, where you'll hear all about what's going on across the defense technology landscape. I'm the host of the Defense Scoop Podcast, Billy Mitchell. Here's what's happening now. The White House published a strategic document this week detailing how it plans to divide and share coveted electromagnetic spectrum across the public and private sectors. And crucial to that development, the Pentagon agreed it is possible for it to offload some of its spectrum so that other sectors can use it. However, that comes with a small caveat. Additional in-depth analysis is needed to explore how both the defense department and the private sector can simultaneously access the spectrum without interference. That strategy document explains that DOD determined that sharing is feasible if certain advanced interference mitigation features and a coordination framework to facilitate spectrum sharing are put in place. It goes on to say that additional studies will explore dynamic spectrum sharing and other opportunities for private sector access in the band, while ensuring DoD and other federal mission capabilities are preserved with any necessary changes. In other news, Pentagon leadership recently issued new interim guidance to advise all U.S. defense and military components ongoing and forthcoming adoption of emerging and disruptive generative artificial intelligence technologies. The new guidance comes from DoD's Task Force Lima, which was launched in August within the Chief Digital and AI Office's Algorithmic Warfare Directorate to quickly explore the potential ramifications and promising use cases for safely integrating generative AI into DoD activities. Although the standards are for DoD internal use only and will not be disseminated publicly due to certain sensitivities, a CEAO spokesperson briefed Defense Scoop on some of the document's key elements upon its first release. Those include risk assessment and mitigation, input restrictions, accountability, and citation, among other things. The guidance also builds off of DOD's AI ethical principles and previous memorandums distributed to personnel. You can read more about these stories and much more at defensescoop.com. For today's interview segment, Defense Scoop Pentagon correspondent Brandy Vincent has a special interview with the U.S. Naval Observatory's Jeff Chester. Brandy, take it away.
2: I'm so excited to be joined by Mr. Jeff Chester today. He is many things. He's an astronomer, a digital imager, a historian, other things too. And he's been with the U.S. Naval Observatory since 1997. Jeff, thanks for joining us.
0: My pleasure.
2: So I recently met up with Jeff and his team at the observatory's headquarters in D.C. um, with other people, too, to celebrate the 150th anniversary of USNO's 26-inch Aperture Great Equatorial Telescope. Through it, I got to see the planet Saturn with my naked eye and some other really breathtaking sights too. It was a really special night. So today, we're going to discuss the significance of that special eye to the sky and other recent modernization updates that have been game-changing for those who use it to make really important observations to this day. With that, we're going to dive right in. Jeff, for those who don't know you, who are you and what do you do for work and for fun?
0: Well, my official position description is I am the public affairs officer for the Naval Observatory. Uh, I've been in that capacity, as you said, since 1997. Um, My job is primarily to explain what we do, uh, which is a lot of very different and interesting things. Uh, to people who have absolutely no idea that the Naval Observatory exists in the first place. I like to tell people that we're one of the best-kept secrets in Washington, Um, but I think it's safe to say that without the work that we do here, a lot of the modern technology, including what we are using right now to do this remote interview, uh, would not be possible. Uh, and that, to me, is one of the things that uh, it, it's a it's something that's kind of hard to get across to people. But you know, I asked my kids today what what their lives would be like if if uh, suddenly their smartphones and everything suddenly went poof. Uh, and they would essentially say that, you know, life would cease to exist as they know it. I mean, also, uh, we do a lot of, I mean, we do astronomy here. Uh, We have telescopes here. We have a uh, actually have a dark sky site out in Flagstaff, Arizona, which is where most of our observing is done. Uh, And one of my all consuming passions since I was uh, probably seven or eight years old was astronomy. Uh, And so I have been able to uh, not only have access to some pretty amazing instruments here to use on my time, uh, but I also uh, have the opportunity to work with people that are doing uh, a lot of cutting edge astronomy, uh, which is very relevant and important for the scientific community and uh, the Department of the Navy and the DoD today. So it's really kind of a uh, it, it's it's a really interesting position. And I think I can honestly say that in the twenty seven years that I've been here, uh, I, I still go home every week learning something I didn't know before.
2: That's awesome. Um, yeah, it really is a special place and so much of the history there. And something else that I think is really cool is you actually have a unique family connection to the observatory. Can you tell us about that real quick?
0: Sure. Uh, by a curious quirk of history. Well, let me let me go back a little bit in time. Uh, the Naval Observatory was actually established. Uh, by order of the SECNAV on December 6th, 1830. Uh, So we've been around a long time. And our original mission was essentially to uh, determine timescales to calibrate marine chronometers, which were a vital link in uh, celestial navigation. Well, a chronometer is basically a clock that's designed to operate on board a ship. But as with most clocks, uh, no two clocks tick at exactly the same rate. So we have uh, an old saying around here that a person with one clock knows what time it is, a person with two is never sure. Uh, in order to calibrate these clocks, you have to calibrate them against a the time scale of known precision. And that time scale was, up until 1967, determined astronomically. So if you're going to build a facility that's going to calibrate clocks, you've got to build an observatory to do it. Uh, So we have had, uh, let's see, our current superintendent, I believe, is now our 58th superintendent since the establishment of the observatory in 1830. Uh, And by a curious quirk of history, uh, my great-grandfather was the superintendent here from uh, November 1902, to February of 1906. Uh, so I have uh, a bit more than just a casual uh, work relationship with the place. There's actually family ties here. And whenever I walk down to the library and walk past the, the rogues gallery of all the past superintendents, he's up on the wall staring straight at me. So uh, he's the one that really keeps me out of trouble and off the streets.
3: <laughs> That's
2: awesome. Yeah, I thought it was really cool when I um, saw some of those unique family archives in your office. Um, and something that just occurred to me, if he was there in the early 1900s, that means he would have seen the Great Equatorial Telescope. Oh,
0: he would have uh, he would have seen it, absolutely. It was uh, moved up here from our old site down at Foggy Bottom uh, in 1893, which is when we finally moved in and occupied the current site that we're located at in northwest D.C., Um, what's more interesting to me is that, uh, we have the smaller telescope here, the 12 inch telescope, which in his day was practically brand new. So, uh, that one, I like to tell people that's one of our, that's one of our newer instruments It was commissioned in 1895. (laughs) Um, now the fun part for me is that that telescope today is used for uh the uh it's there for essentially the recreational use of the staff uh and a number of us uh have various uh various things that we do with the telescope i am part of a group that uh does high resolution imaging of the planets uh and so i go up there in fact i'll probably go up there this evening before i go home to take a few shots of saturn uh and uh You know, it's kind of cool to think that I'm using the same instrument that my great grandfather might have used.
2: Yeah, that's incredible. And some of the photos you've taken of not just Saturn but other um, planets with it—it's—it's really awesome. So let's talk a little bit about the great now 150th year old equatorial telescope. You mentioned a little bit uh, about some of its history, but briefly, walk us through. I know the first time astronomers looked through its eyepiece was 1873. Right. Um, a few a few decades later, it moved um, to its spot now. Walk us through um, briefly the history of the telescope. why what are its roots? Why um, did it come to be and, and what was its early days like?
0: Well, it was, uh, it was a very interesting situation because uh, in 1867, uh, two years after the end of the Civil War, uh, we had a superintendent here, Rear Admiral Benjamin Franklin Sands, um, and if you ever get a chance, you should Google him and look up his Wikipedia page. He had the most awesome beard you've ever seen uh they don't let you do that in the navy anymore but you know he was one of those civil war admirals so he had this beard that went down to his you know anyway <laughs> um he and simon newcomb who was the essentially the chief scientist in those days he was uh, the head of the nautical almanac office and uh was generally regarded as the most prominent american scientist of the 19th century uh, the two of them got together and uh, Newcomb was interested in uh, improving the tables for the positions of the planets Jupiter and Saturn uh, for the annual almanacs, because where, where they actually were in the sky versus where they were predicted to be uh, didn't match up. Uh, Newcomb knew of the existence, as did everybody at that particular point in time, they knew of the existence of the planets Uranus and Neptune, but nobody knew what their masses were. And Newcomb knew that if he could figure out what the masses of those planets were, he could come up with new tables for the positions of Jupiter and Saturn that were more accurate than the ones before. So uh, his idea was to get this large telescope, because that's the size telescope he needed, to be able to measure the positions of the moons of Uranus and Neptune. And the thing about physics and astronomy is that if you can measure things orbiting around something else, uh, you can derive the mass of that object that they're orbiting around. Uh, And so that was his uh, reason for wanting the telescope. It was almost purely scientific. Sands wanted it because uh, as he wrote in his reports, annual reports of 1867 and 1868, uh, that there were colleges and well-heeled amateur astronomers who had larger telescopes than the Naval Observatory did. And this was nothing short of a national disgrace, especially because of the fact that the uh, the, the most talented living telescope maker at the time was an American. And that, you know, America, we should have an American telescope that's at the you know, National Observatory and that's bigger and better than anything else than anybody else ever had. Well, his appeals essentially fell on deaf ears for his, uh, from his superiors, um, but uh, one, uh, one day in 1870, um, the, uh, the Cyrus Field, who was the man who essentially bankrolled the first transatlantic cable, was having lunch with two senators, uh, along with his young son. And the senators asked the son how he liked his visit to Washington and what did he see and what was the most impressive thing that he saw. And he said that his favorite thing to visit was the Naval Observatory, which at the time was located down in Foggy Bottom. Uh, but it was a pretty cool place in those days. Um, and, uh, the one thing that the Sun noted was that they had, the observatory had a very small telescope, uh, you know, and, and he had seen ones that were bigger in other places. Uh, so the senators thought that this was just, you know, this was just, we, we can't have this. We've got to have the biggest and best telescope. Uh, So they went and introduced legislation that wound up appropriating $55,000 for the acquisition of such a telescope. Uh, So even though the Navy brass did not really, they didn't approve the telescope, uh, the Senate basically handed them the money and said, buy the telescope. So that was essentially how uh, we came uh, to get it. Uh, it was installed, um, it, it took, uh, the, the only parts that were not made in the United States were the two glass blanks for the lenses. Uh, there was only one company in the world that could manufacture those, and that was, uh, a company in England, uh, and as it was, it took them three tries before they got successful discs, uh, almost bankrupted the company, um. The disks arrived at the uh, works of Alvin Clark and Sons, the telescope makers in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Uh, They arrived in 1871, and it took them two years to grind and polish the lenses uh, and build the mounting. Uh, All that stuff was delivered to Washington in the fall of 1873, uh, assembled at the old Naval Observatory site, and it was on November 12th of 1873 that uh, a, party of, uh, a party consisting of the superintendent, Simon Newcomb, some of the other astronomers at the observatory, uh, and the Clarks uh, got their first look through the telescope. And that's always a momentous occasion with a new telescope, something called first light. Uh, And it was uh, within a week that the Newcomb started doing regular observations of the moons of Uranus and Neptune. And by 1875, he had essentially completed the work that he wanted to do with it. Uh, So he then turned it over to another astronomer on staff named Asaph Hall. And Asaph Hall then used the telescope to discover Phobos and Deimos, the two moons of Mars, And that was considered to be one of the great scientific discoveries of the 19th century. And it really put the Naval Observatory on a par with other national observatories, uh, uh, especially in Europe, where uh, these uh, these facilities were highly developed. Uh, So that really kind of launched us as uh, an internationally ranked uh, scientific institution.
2: And I just want to make a plug here and say that while I was there, it was really cool to see Ace of Halls' actual notes from the yes, of yeah. discovering those yeah. moons. And um, there's a lot of archives that your team's done a great job, and yeah. uh, the librarian there has done a great job of saving. But seeing, uh, oh, we have
0: we have all of the logbooks awesome. for the telescope starting. Uh, Starting in uh, with the first one in in uh, November of
3: eighteen seventy three yeah, and
0: uh, my favorite one is actually one. Of course, you know, it was a brand new telescope. It was here in Washington, and you know, uh, it it caused quite a splash. It got a lot of press in those days. So a lot of people wanted to come and visit. Uh, over the course of the telescope's uh, hundred and fifty year career, we've actually had four presidents that have looked through it at various times. Uh, And the first one was on February 16th of uh, 1874. So the telescope had only been operational for a couple of months uh, when President Grant and his family came over. And there's a wonderful note in the logbook by Simon Newcomb, which says something to the effect of President Grant, Mrs. Grant, and Miss Nellie Grant the representatives of the American people uh, did the uh, um, did the honor of uh, to uh, or did the honor to uh, the um, nebula in Orion, the cluster in Perseus, and the planet Uranus uh, the honor to gaze augustly upon them.
2: <laughs> so,
0: and it's in the logbook. Uh, And it's like inserted between his regular pencil observations of measurements of the moons of Uranus. Uh, and then in red pencil, it's got this, you know, oh, by the way, the president came by and then the right underneath that is a more regular observations of the moon of Neptune. So, you know, it was like, yeah, uh, other than that, the president came by, but we got the work
3: done.
2: Right. It was just so funny to see in a lot of the archives, there, like the small nuances of history that mm-hmm. were put in all of the scientific research. Um, yeah. The one where he, he Asaph had his other friends come and write and see and confirm the moons, right? Little things.
0: Oh well, we know the we know it's not real until the boss sees it. So <laughs> the next night, uh, he was out in the dome, and and Simon Newcomb made the measurements then, and. If Simon Newcomb saw them, then they had to be real.
2: Yeah, it's it's so cool. And so from then, um, and I'm going to encourage our listeners to go in line and, and see more about the history of how it was moved from foggy bottom um due to sort of the bad views there. But let's get a little bit closer to now. Over the years, since it's been um where it is now, what are some of the sort of major achievements or things that it's been used for that have really been impactful, maybe not even just for the U.S., but for the globe?
0: Right. Well, um, the primary mission of the telescope, pretty much from the get-go and uh, up through uh, most of the 20th century, uh, we've been focusing primarily on two uh, classes of objects. The first, uh, again, are the uh, the moons of the planets, uh, especially those of the outer solar system, uh, when it came time to plan out the, the Voyager missions that flew through the uh, Jupiter and Saturn systems back in the uh, mid to late 70s, they needed very precise measurements and uh, tables to predict where the moons of those planets were going to be so they could target flybys of them. Uh, you know, all this is just the celestial mechanics aspect of it just boggles my mind sometimes, but, uh, we were, uh, we had an astronomer here who spent probably the better part of 10 years, uh, photographing the positions of those moons on every clear night when they could be seen, uh, and that went into essentially targeting the Voyager probes, uh, and ultimately the Galileo orbiter that went, uh, into orbit around Jupiter, The other thing that we have done since 1893 with the telescope from this site is the measurement of what we call the astrometric properties of binary stars. Uh, Binary stars actually make up the majority of stars that you see in the sky, and the majority of those are actually physical pairs where you've got two stars that are orbiting their center of mass. Uh, One of the missions that we have here is to determine the precise positions of objects, not only right now, but where they are going to be 15, 20, 30, 50 years from now, because we have some systems that uh, are like geostationary satellites and that sort of thing, which can't use GPS to locate themselves in space. So they measure their positions uh, using what are called fine guidance sensors, which are essentially little telescopes that measure angles between stars. Uh, All the stars in the sky are moving, so and they're moving in random directions. So we can't just say this is where the stars are now and hope that 50 years from now or 20 years from now, whatever the operational lifetime of the system is, that those stars are going to be there. Uh, We need to know exactly where they're going to be. Now, if all the stars were single stars, that would be fairly easy because a single star would essentially move in a straight line over that period of time. We monitor it for a couple of years and we can figure out where it's going to be 50, 100, 200 years into the future. But with double stars, the center of mass of the binary system moves in a straight line. And each individual star's or the orbital motion of that star around that center of mass gets superimposed on it, and that is something that needs to be taken into account. So if we don't have accurate measurements of double stars, uh, we can't predict what their orbits are going to be around each other, and then how that affects the apparent positions of the components of the stars. This telescope has been making double star observations from this site since 1893, and the telescope optically and mechanically hasn't changed. So it's it's a very, very long standing database. Now, recently, we have automated the telescope so that it will actually go through a computerized observing program with a list of objects for each night. And it has a new detector on the back that allows us to measure the properties of the double star Uh, in about two minutes instead of the old uh, hour plus that it used to take to do it visually. So we have huge, we have tremendous throughput now. uh, And that telescope has now uh, observed, has has now made over 50,000, I think it's about 55,000 individual double star measurements uh, since 1893. It's the most prolific double star telescope in the world. And it is also the oldest continuously operating research grade telescope in the world. And the reason for that is that these types of objects uh, require very precise optical parameters uh, to be able to, to measure them accurately. And a telescope like the 26 inch, which is a refracting telescope, it uses lenses instead of mirrors to form an image. That type of telescope is ideally suited to making this kind of observation but the epoch of large refracting telescopes ceased at the end of the 19th century since then virtually all the big telescopes that have been built for professional observatories are reflecting telescopes and optically they are just not as good for observing double stars as these big old refractors are uh, so that's why we keep it going, uh, and uh, with any luck, it'll keep going for another 50 years. I don't think I'll be around to see its bicentennial, but I'm sure that it will see its bicentennial.
2: Yeah, I hope so. I was going to ask you about what's to come. It's, it's funny, too. We had talked a lot about double stars, and they didn't fully click for me until I saw them through the telescope, and realized. right oh, without the telescope, it looks like one star. Right. But through the telescope, you see that it's actually two. Basically, they look like twin stars, right. that like each other and are different from all the rest. And right. there, it was just really cool how many things made sense once my eye was behind the eyepiece of it Right, um, and just how you see the world and other worlds differently. Um,
0: right.
2: So neat. But I wanted to talk just a little bit more um, on this modernization uh, that you mentioned. Um, something that really struck me while I was visiting was uh, some of the older astronomers or the alumni from the observatory who were visiting back and um, the scientists there now talking about how Uh, the difference it made in their essentially day-to-day work, how back back they would have to sit outside. So talk to us a little bit about how um, the automation of the telescope meant a lot, not just for the science and research, but also for the human experience.
0: For the creature comfort of the astronomer, yes. Uh, The thing about telescopes um, is that the temperature inside the dome needs to match uh, very closely to the temperature outside the dome. Uh, If you have a large differential in temperature when you open the dome slit, uh, you either have cold air rushing in or hot air rushing out. uh, And that causes distortion in the images of the stars. That's why stars twinkle at night. Uh, Except in this case, uh, it's doing it just a couple of feet in front of the lens of the telescope so those photons that have been traveling for 100 light years, over 100 light years distance or so, uh, they get within, you know, 10 feet of the end of the telescope and they get distorted by this, you know, rush of cold air going out or coming in. Um, so observing uh, can be, uh, in, in February, it can be very cold. Um we had observers who used to have surplus Air Force flight suits that they could plug in to stay warm. Uh, in the summertime, you had the opposite problem, uh, which was that uh it was really, really toasty. I mean, when it's 98 degrees outside, it's 98 degrees inside and there's no breeze. And you sort of run into a situation where, um, there's only so many clothes that you can take off and maintain some semblance of decorum. So uh, that was part of the reason. The other was that uh, the computerization of telescopes has gotten, uh, I mean, it's to the point now where even uh, uh, my the work that I do with my personal telescopes at home uh, are now, uh, they're now all computer controlled. Uh, you know, it used to be when I would go out to a dark sky site and I'd want to track down some faint galaxy or something, I'd have to have a star chart and I'd have to match a field in a finder scope with the stars around the object I was looking for and generally kind of, and it would take a few minutes to find the thing. Uh, now I just have it, uh, I can even call it up from my smartphone and uh run my telescope wirelessly and say i want to look at this object and go boop like that and the telescope slews to it that's what we're doing now with the big telescope uh and it makes acquiring the target much more um, quick it acquires the target much more quickly and it has a provision where if it's not quite centered on the target Uh, you remember there was a smaller telescope hanging off the side of the big one that has a little digital camera on it, takes a snapshot of the star field, uh, figures out how far the telescope is from where it's supposed to be pointed. Uh, and it does what we call a plate solve and moves the telescope and the object you're looking for is smack in the center. Uh, so acquiring the images, acquiring the targets and acquiring the images uh, all r- uh, autonomously, essentially, uh, has really taken uh, the, the kind of the drudge work out of uh, the old method of doing it. So uh, they're basically measuring a star about every three minutes when it's in full operation. Uh, and that's going acquiring the target, centering it, taking the data, and moving on to the next star. That's all done within three minutes. Uh, it's pretty remarkable. Part of the problem that we actually have right now is that uh, we no longer have manual control of the telescope like we had 10, 15 years ago. Uh, So, you know, you can't just slew the telescope and look at the setting circles and say, yeah, I'm pretty close here, and then look in the eyepiece and center everything up. The computer actually has to drive the telescope now. And the computer is located in one of the office spaces so that you can't tell where you're pointed unless you're in the office. So it's kind of a tag team right now to get things like Saturn in the eyepiece. Somebody has to stay in and they have to yell back and forth at each other. And it's like, okay, it's in the center now. Uh, but generally once they have everything locked down and calibrated, then it's straightforward from there, it will go right to wherever we ask it to go for the, the next object. So, uh it's a bit uh it it was uh, i think a surprise for some of the old timers who were here uh to see that um you know we have to go through this process now to do something that for them was you know kind of routine uh but uh at the same time we're also getting a lot more data uh, a lot faster so you know, you can't stand in the way of progress. And if the the telescope is uh if if the telescope is adaptable to the technology, we will keep improving it.
2: That's awesome. That's what I was gonna say. Do you um as we're getting towards the end here, do, do you see many more years of life for this telescope and it continuing to be almost more intelligent with the work that it does?
0: Well, I think as the as the technology improves, uh, and again, uh the uh the, the 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 ability to control the telescope is, you know, it's really not that much different from what I do for my little four-inch telescope at home. Uh, it's just that uh, we're dealing with a lot more mass. The moving mass of the telescope is about nine tons. So you have to have safety interlocks and things like that so it doesn't, you know, run into anything because uh, if it does, you will either break whatever it is it hits or break some part of the telescope um but uh i think that over over the the long term i foresee uh probably within the next five or six years that they will uh essentially have it uh controllable from uh a uh, uh it, it controllable over the internet uh a lot of a lot of astronomers today never go to the never go to the mountaintop to the observatory anymore uh, they, uh, they essentially lease time on the telescope and connect to it over the internet um, and uh, do, that, uh, do that kind of thing. Uh, that, I think, is going to be the next phase is uh, the astronomers won't even need to, you know, they won't need to be on the grounds to run the telescope. They can do it from their homes. Uh, so that, I think, is going to be the next big thing.
2: That is certainly something, um, I will keep an eye on and keep in touch with you guys to, uh, see. That's definitely exciting. Is there anything else you want to share, um, before we finish up today?
0: Um, no, I don't think so. Uh, as I said, you know, there's, there's a ton of history here. Uh, we are, uh, really, uh, proud of the the work, not only of the telescope, but of the people who have maintained it over the years, uh, you know, all this work to do the automation, uh, to install the encoders, to the motors, and all that, that was done here in house. Uh, we had a software consultant come in to help with the software, um, but really the, uh, the folks in our instrument shop uh, were uh, just, you know, they, they were the ones that did the heavy lifting and got everything to work uh, from the mechanical point of view. And this is uh, something that they are very skilled at. Um, And uh, we actually are establishing robotic telescopes in a number of locations around the world now. Uh, And, uh, you know, they fly down to South America, they go out to Arizona to our Flagstaff station, um, and uh, they make it work. And that really is the thing that, uh, you know, you, you can't say enough about uh, the, the support that, that they have and the dedication to the, uh, to the technology that they're working with.
2: Absolutely. It's pretty
0: remarkable.
2: It is. And having met them, they're all such kind people, just like you. It's, it's such a great <laughs> team over there. Um, well, Jeff, thank you so much for joining us, um, for this podcast today. I hope our listeners learned and enjoyed it as much as I did. And, um, we will stay in touch for more all right. down the line. Okay.
1: Okie doke. You can learn more about the U.S. Naval Observatory at DefenseScoop.com. And now I'll pass it over to my colleague, Wyatt Cash, for a conversation with the sponsor of this episode, Google for Government.
3: I'm Wyatt Cash with Scoop News Group, and joining me today is Brian Thomas, Managing Director, Department of Defense at Google Public Sector, to talk about how Google Cloud is differentiating itself from other providers in this space to deliver best-of-breed cloud services to the defense community. Google for Government is a Defense Scoop podcast sponsor. Uh, Brian, welcome to the program. And let me start by asking, uh, as you know, data security and compliance are key concerns cited by government leaders that are sometimes hesitant about moving into the cloud. How has Google addressed some of those concerns? Yeah, well, uh,
4: first of all, thank you very much for the opportunity, excited to be here and talk with you about this topic. And starting with the, you know, I think Google's, You know kind of those one of the superpowers uh security right so you know number one i think just get grounded on google's network infrastructure uh subsea cables that are running around the globe that run this zero trust architecture uh in in the fact that you know our consumer-based products that we all leverage today if you use search or youtube or if you happen to be a pixel or gmail user um, you know, those, those 10 applications are running over a billion users per and leveraging that zero-trust architecture to ensure that all of our consumer-based products and our cloud solutions, are, including GCP, are secure and our customers' data is their data. Now, there's a lot that we've invested into our security portfolio. In addition to that, including our mandate acquisition, um solutions that we have around our virus total our automatic threat detection and you know this this overall security command center that we have and our as we're engaging customers in this security journey because this zero trust kind of journey i would call it rather than just an architecture you know google founded their solution in 2008. So we really get an opportunity to engage in the customer with our lessons learned on, you know, how we've been able to prevent these nation state attacks amongst our um, systems and leverage those, you know, past performance and those capabilities and build our portfolio to prepare for the customer for really a a cloud and a multi-cloud architectural approach.
3: And then can you share a little more specifically about how Google Cloud's platform is engineered so that it can meet a range of needs among defense agencies operating globally?
4: Yeah, I, I call this a little bit of a chess piece uh, for, for Google. Um, a couple of years ago, instead of building out a government cloud, separate data centers, Google took a different approach to accomplishing our aisle two to aisle five accreditation. And we did a f- logical separation of our data centers with our network capabilities versus a physical separation. And what that provides, GCP provides is true commercial cloud capabilities, right? For un- for non-classified workloads. And so you think about the capabilities that you can bring within that, one, it, it adds to that security point we talked about before because when you have that many workloads and you have that many features, you're going to have an increased amount of capabilities and security amongst that, you know, non-specific data center government cloud. But the, but the other part of it is you're going to have capabilities that are going to be feature-rich and very joint use amongst what the, the DOD and the customer wants to do. And the features and and the feature parity that we provide our commercial our commercial capabilities. So our IL five instantiation of commercial cloud is truly game changing as relates to the elasticity and the capabilities that can grow even beyond the United States. Even though today our accreditation within the boundary of the United States is among these nine different data centers that we have set up that are logically separated, but it has the ability to grow globally. And even as much as the workloads that we may be considered to take on over a period of time or the spikes, it has that elasticity and capabilities to expand way beyond even the United States or the department's initial cloud architecture desired outcomes. So we're very excited about the security aspects that GCP brings to the table, the feature parity, and the global elasticity for all of our customers and partners to leverage.
3: Interesting. So let me shift gears a little on you here. Uh, there's obviously a growing desire to build out AI capabilities and especially generative AI uh, in across uh, government, and you know that's to obviously accelerate mission activities. Can you talk a little on how Google Cloud is delivering on those needs?
4: Yeah, you you, you may be surprised when the 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 person at Google wants to talk about data before I want to talk about AI because. Google loves AI, uh, You know, founded in 97 with the search capabilities that Google started with and all the products that we have, these consumer-based products, the feature-rich environments that are created from that and what, what um, our consumers and our customers are receiving embedded amongst all these products is AI. But before that, and I think where our Department of Defense and civilian agencies and organizations are is truly in a digital transformation and a data transformation today around how we can monetize those applications first to prepare to connect the APIs and connect those data points to then provide the proper gateways for those applications to have a desired AI outcome. And I think it's going to be a journey that we're all on together. And it's not it's not going to be something that happens overnight. But Google, as an organization, is way leaning into this conversation commercially, globally, and within our own products. And what we're preparing our Department of Defense customers to do is to look at our AI principles and to partner with us to think about what their principles need to be to protect the data for the DOD as they are going through their digital transformation and prepare each one of these organizations to look at a responsible opportunity to leverage generative AI, to meet the demands of the department and continue to transform both their employees, their workforce and how they're operating their individual departments and agencies as they lean in so why i i'd say it's a we're we're you know on a the first <laughs> maybe the first step of a multi-phase journey for customers to leverage cloud capabilities to then get into the the real data and application modernization and the digital transformation to prepare to get into ai and generative ai
3: well, and finally, speaking of cloud capabilities, um, it's obvious that these capabilities are continuing to evolve at a, uh, an amazing pace. So what would you recommend to those in the defense community about the kinds of capabilities that they should be looking for now from their cloud provider?
4: Yeah, I think it's a great point in in where, how you kind of individualized cloud provider because you know, obviously, Google is a. We are a multi-cloud organization. Uh, if you look at, you know, Anthos and you know Kubernetes in general, you know, we've we've kind of led the way in open-source applications that would allow for it to run on multiple clouds. We have one of our, you know, crown jewels, BigQuery Omni, we call it, which is the the structure and unstructure. Data search engine that we use that runs search that you know can be capable that can run in multiple cloud architectures. So I think what customers should be asking for their CSPs, their cloud service providers, is one: is what is it that those organizations are good at, and how do they leverage each independent cloud to connect together based on the value that that particular cloud. Um, can service that organization. And I would say that we're all going to have unique superpowers that we bring to the table um, that certain organizations are going to leverage that and it's going that's going to open up one, it's going to open up a conversation of competition. Two, it's going to open up a second conversation of compliance and more security. And three, I think you're going to have greater capabilities by leveraging multiple clouds to get to your ultimate outcome. And specifically, that's the journey that we've seen in the commercial enterprise space. And it took, you know, years for that to kind of transpire. So I think as, you know, the federal organization gets more, continues to get more mature, looking across the commercial landscape and seeing the lessons that they've learned and how they've truly adopted a connected multi-cloud architecture is been game-changing for their, outcomes that they're driving within their digital transformation and where they're seeing optimization across their organization. And I think the federal government is in a perfect position to learn from that situation and leverage these clouds that they have um, to be able to be wildly successful over the course of the next five to 10 years.
3: Absolutely. Well, and especially with uh, the Defense Department's efforts around Zero Trust, uh, the uh, White House executive order on both national security and now AI, uh, we obviously are seeing government poised for really a major transformation uh, unlike any we've really seen, and the cloud is central to accomplishing that. Um, Well, Brian Thomas, thank you so much for joining us, sharing some of your insights uh, about the cloud and Google cloud in particular and how the, the defense community can stand to benefit from all of that. So thank you for being with us. I appreciate the time. And it was really good conversation. Absolutely. Thank you.
1: The Defense Scoop podcast is available on all podcast platforms. If you've already rated the podcast on your platform of choice, thanks so much. High ratings and good reviews of the show help more people to find it. The Defense Scoop Podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. Adam Butler and Carlin Fisher help put the show together and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. We'll be back with a brand new episode next month. Until then, thanks so much for listening. I'm your host, Billy Mitchell.